In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about why absolute thinking is always bad. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 445. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products, whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. Did you catch the joke, the uh, sarcasm in the title there? Just just a little. Like, is it though? Is it always bad? Always bad. So we're going to dive into always, never, absolute thinking in this episode. But before we do that, what's the word this week, sir? Oh, well, I'm, I'm still going through the hell that is the Google authentication approval process. And I feel like it's one of those ongoing sagas, kind of like Game of Thrones right now, where like the last episode's coming up and you're just like, oh, just let it end. And you're just like, oh, it's going to take a little while. So I don't know. I, they sent me an email. What was it? I asked them for more information. They said, we, we signed up. And this is me going on a rant here. But they signed up for BlueTick, apparently. And then they ran into the credit card screen. And then they emailed me saying, uh, we need you to make, this, uh, make our account so that we can uh, log into your application without, you know, and bypass the payment information. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, you're Google. I imagine that somewhere there is a credit card that you could put in for like the 14-day trial. I would just imagine that that would be the case someplace. But of course, I emailed them and it was like a week later and still nothing from them. Like, I was just like, I need an email address. Like, what email address did you sign up with? Didn't hear a word from them. And then they're like, oh, you have five days to comply. I'm like, come on. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, yeah. So this coming Monday is when they're like, oh, you have five days to comply or these are the steps that we're going through. And we're going to start notifying people like your users that are connected. I'm like, come on. It's like, it's just ridiculous. So I don't know how that all is going to turn out over the next couple of weeks, but it's just, it's frustrating and irritating. And of course, at the bottom of it, like it's one of those like worst case scenarios where they go into detail about like, oh, you're not going to be able to add any new users, you know, using Google Gmail accounts. And I'm like, come on. So basically they're taking aim and saying, well, if you don't do this, you're going to, we're going to tank your business. Like, thanks. It's a little bit like dealing with the state government or federal <laughs> yeah. government, right? Where it's like only with them you can like just pay a fine or a penalty or a late fee or something like that. Like they're threatening to like shut things off, and I'm just yeah. like, this just sucks. So, would you say never build on top of Google, Mike? Oh. <laughs> <In> this episode, <laughs> never trust Google. It's not never, but know what you're getting into, right? Is that it? I, I think what it would boil down to is that if a company removes don't be evil from their company motto, it is probably not wise to rely on them not being evil. Right. And you might say, I will never build on Google again or know the, the pros and cons of basically building a business that relies on them. But yeah, that's that's tough, man. I mean, I it, it's a similar thing that I've dealt with with setting up payroll in multiple states where you like Gusto and I guess Zenefits and there's a few others that like it appears that it makes it just magical, like get payroll running and it's no problem. And then it's like you have to sign up for at least two janky online web accounts that were built in 1997 with state governments to get like the revenue office of revenue of this state. And then it's like the unemployment stuff so that it can pay into this. And then you have to give gusto access and that never works the first four times. And it's not threatening to, to 
tank a business, but it is something that adds a bunch of back and forth that's frustrating that you can't actually get it done, that you really can't outsource to someone. That was the thing I always struggled with is like someone had, you know, you almost need a chief operating officer or an office manager who's really going to dig in and do it, but kind of something you just have to deal with. And it's just a headache that wastes time. And it's the not fun part. One of the many not fun parts of running a business. Yeah. The other thing is that how opaque the whole process is like it's Google. I mean, they're kind of like Facebook or Apple. Like you have no way to like talk to a real person. I guess with Apple, it's a little different. You could go to the Apple store, but even then, like if you need to talk to somebody, an engineer or something like that, I've only heard of one situation where the, somebody was able to get an Apple engineer who like was in the design and engineering office in Apple. And it was because something literally caught on fire and uh, it was some charging cable or something like that. And it was like the second or third time that it happened. They're like, I want to talk to that person. And that that's the only one that I've ever heard of. So it was like just getting somebody to talk to, to, to say like, how does this, how is this supposed to actually work? And how, like, what's the next step? And how do I talk to somebody about getting either a waiver or something like that or extension, nothing like, there's no information and they're just not forthcoming with it. So anyway, so I will leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. How about you? <laughs> All right. Yeah, we can stop. <laughs> rants, uh, Google rants for the rest of us. I wanted to give a shout out and a thank you to Rich Stats. He runs secretstash.com, which is a WordPress agency, and it's spelled S-T-A-C-H-E, like a mustache, secretstash.com. But he's a WordPress uh, agency, and you and I have met him at different big snow tiny comps. He comes to microconf as well. And we were having some issues with the, <laughs> just to put it mildly, some minor issues with the Startups for the Rest of Us website because it's on a, do we think a nine-year-old WordPress theme? Eight-year-old, nine-year-old, it's pretty, it's pretty ancient. It's getting a lot. It's like, it's, it's like, it's like 70 in human years. Yeah. Right? That's, isn't that like an eight-year-old WordPress theme, uh? 70. Yeah. I think it's nine years per. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, he dove in, he helped us out, really appreciated it. And um, now we, our comments appear, you know, people were making comments and we could see them in the admin, but like they wouldn't appear on, on the actual episodes. And as such, we have a few comments that I, uh, I haven't read through over the past couple months. So episode 432, you and I talked about how to indirectly overcome sales objections. And Matt, made a comment. He said, great episode. I love the idea of using KB articles to overcome sales objections. I'm trying to figure out what knowledge base I should use. It looks like they can get pretty pricey. Mike, I like the look of your KB at support.bluetick.io. Is that something you built yourself or are you somehow using a service for that? So I'm using Teamwork Desk for that. And it's just a, a redirect with my DNS, just redirects support.bluetick.io bluetick.io over to that and it's all completely hosted there they've got stuff where it integrates into their desk products as well so that if i'm answering a, a question or somebody has a problem and there is a kb article on it i can link directly to that kb article from within teamwork desk works quite well you can have multiple mailboxes set up it's charged per user and i don't know, i've found it to work pretty well so far so that's what I use. I think there's a, there's a lot of other ones that do the, uh, something similar where they will have a KB article hosted for you or a set of KB articles. But that was one that I found that it was just, it was simple and easy to get into and it just kind of worked and met my needs for the time being. It makes a lot of sense, right? When you're, when you're small, you have a support system, email support where you're already using it. I would say teamwork, desk, or help scout would be my two top recommendations for that. 
and both of them have built-in KBs. And I think it's probably a little bit of extra money per month. I don't even know, but that's to- a totally viable option if you want it hosted. What we did at Drip, and it worked out, it worked out fine. I don't know at this point that I would do it again. I was trying to be budget conscious and didn't want to pay a bunch of money at the time, but we had a WordPress install hosted on WP Engine, and we used the know-how theme and customized it a little bit to look like, you know, we have drip colors and it worked great for us. And it was essentially free because I already was paying for this, you know, this, the WP Engine account. So that's another option. Of course, then you have all the maintenance and the, all the stuff that goes along with WordPress that just feels like it gets worse and worse over time. So those are some two relatively inexpensive options depending on how you want to go. Yeah, I went with Teamwork Desk mainly because it also offered, I forget what they call them, but it's basically a part-time account as well for free. So as long as if you have somebody who's doing, uh, who needs to log into the ticketing system and they only need to see tickets once in a while, or you only need to have them answer them once in a while, then the part-time agents basically take over and they can answer, I think, up to 10 for free. And then your regular users, I think I was only paying, I think I'm still only paying like eight or $10 a month or something like that. It's pretty, it's really cheap for what I'm using, but I didn't need very much either. I mean, it's not like I needed to do higher end stuff where I need to have like advanced workflows or, you know, I didn't really care about sending out satisfaction surveys to people because it's not like I was getting a, a large number of tickets and I'm still not. So it's not like I need to move off of it. It's a great place to start though. Indeed. And we have another comment. It was episode 433 where we answered several listener questions. And in that episode, we talked about VidHug, which is a B2C service that, if I recall, was doing around 500, um, five or 600 a month MRR. And you could send out a link. It was kind of B2C. It was aimed to, let's say it was you know your grandma's birthday, and you could send uh, links out to all the relatives. They could record something on their iPhone, and it would like stitch together, together a happy birthday video. So that was the concept. And Tyler made a comment. He said, hey, Rob and Mike, don't know if they'd be interested, but VidHug sounds like a great idea for small businesses looking for testimonials. They can invite their customers to leave testimonials. Then the company can use those videos for Facebook ads and social proof. That could be a B2B opportunity with recurring revenue. Was wondering if you could pass that along because I would pay for that now. Just a thought I had while listening. Keep up the great work. Thanks, guys. So I was like, I thought that was a kind of a clever, probably a better use because I think the VidHug founder had had asked about switching to B2B and like going after HR, you know, HR and having them do welcome videos and stuff. But this could be, I almost like this better because it's just an easier sales process, right, than going after uh, HR departments. Yeah. The only downside I would say that I see there is if you're going after testimonials, how many testimonials do people go after in a particular year? Like you're not going to constantly be doing that. So it almost feels like there's a, I don't, I don't want to say it's a one-time fee, but it's like a fee for a three-month period or something like that. And you're using it and it's used during that time period. And then after that, you're probably not going to use it again for like another six months or a year or something like that. So the pricing might be an issue, like how you price it might be an issue. But if you don't, care that it's recurring, then it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're just going after customers to get them as customers and try to establish revenue, then it doesn't matter. Yep. I would agree with that. You could do a three month or you could do an annual and just make it just make it annual only pricing or something. Last comment for the day before we dive in, episode 434, SaaS KPIs you should focus on from day one. Anna Maste said Oh, this is a comment relating to when you sent out the, I believe it was the scholarship applications and you forgot the email. Oh God. You forgot to put the email in the form and you had like 70 of them or something that you had to go through. And Anna says, 
LOL, I totally noticed that you didn't have an email field in the microconf application. I just figured that we were living in a post-email world and you'd DM everyone on Twitter. That did make me feel like I was way too old though and that microconf was going to be too hip for me. So I'm glad to hear it was an accident. Yeah, I don't believe, we're not in a post-email world and I don't know that we're ever getting there. So I thought that was funny. Well, it's funny because I was still able to track down pretty much everybody on there. Like, I don't think there was anyone I couldn't track down or didn't wasn't able to eventually get an email address for. So, yeah, like <laughs> I'm I'm shocked that it, I had enough information just to be able to track people down, but it was still time consuming. It's not post email world, but I guess given enough time, you could make it a post email world. But you have to have enough information too. Right. Cool. So let's dive in today. As I said, you know, the, t- the title is a bit of a joke. Why absolute thinking is always bad. Really, the, I mean, an alternate title is why absolute thinking can be toxic to you, your business, and other people who kind of are listening to you. I think if you're wondering what absolute thinking is, it's that very black and white view of things. It, you know, examples of that are if you see someone say, you know, this always works. You should always do this. Always is a key. This never works. You should never do this. I should, oftentimes it's like, I should do this, which is like a, maybe that's not an absolute feeling, but it is, it's, it's kind of like an assumption or, or a burden you're putting on yourself. And the reason I want to talk about this today, because we were talking about it before, before recording and you were like, you know, what's the, what's the point of pointing out that something is bad? And it's because I believe that successful founders and frankly, successful humans that I like to have conversations with stay away from absolute thinking and, and see the nuance in complex things instead of trying to break them down to black or white or zero to ones. I believe the entire startup community itself will be better off if there's just less of this, if there's fewer of us that believe that there are this absolute, you know, you should always never do this. We have more examples later on in this episode of, of actual examples that I've heard over, well, over the years, frankly, that I, I believe it's, it's a fallacy, right? It's, it's thinking that isn't true. And it's more than semantics. It's not digging in and saying, when someone says always, and they mean 95% of the time, like that, that's a very different thing. There are exceptions to, to most of these things. Now, there are times when absolute thinking is is useful. It's with ethics and with, you know, I mean, we genocide. I mean, there are, there are things when, yes, this is always bad, right? So it, that's why the title is a joke, but I think we're going to give some specific examples of marketing approaches and, and that kind of stuff that I think will lend a little more, that will lend a little more detail to what we're thinking about here. This almost goes back a, a little bit to what I had kind of opened up MicroConf with this year, which was kind of the fact of the matter is that when we go to MicroConf and we're talking to all these other founders, that we're essentially raising the bar for every single person there just because we're learning from each other. And I, I definitely think this is one of those things where we can learn a lot from it. But I, I do want to dig in a little bit to the piece that you just said on if somebody says always, uh, always do this. And what they really mean is 95% of the time, how do you differentiate between what they meant to say versus what they actually said? Because a lot of this time I see this stuff come up on Twitter, for example, or in places where there's not a lot of room to expound upon what the person actually meant. And then there will be people who jump in in the comments and just like rip them apart and say, oh, that's not always true. Or, well, actually this and that. And, you know, how do you differentiate between that? Or is it just you have to rely on your own personal knowledge of that? Because if you don't know anything about it, how would you know that it's 95% versus 50%? Yeah. And that's the problem with, that's why words matter, right? If you say almost without exception or in almost all cases or nine times out of 10, like that's, that tends to be how we talk on the podcast, right? That tends to be how Jason Freed talks now. He didn't used to be, he used to be more absolute, but something I liked about his QA this year at MicroConf is that he wasn't 
nearly as black and white on things as I think he was 10 years ago. When I heard Jason Cohen talk, I don't know that I've heard him say always or never. It's it's very much the same way we think and talk about things where it's like, yeah, in some cases this and that, but as a general rule, blah, 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 as a rule of thumb, I will always, I mean, you know, we already talked about that. Like you will probably never write another app that relies on Google, but you wouldn't say never do that. You're not going to tell everyone else they shouldn't do that because there are pros and cons to it. And so that, that's where I think it is. It's like the, the words matter and language does matter. I think that's something that we've seen over the past 20 years of, of a lot of language being adapted and people not saying, hey, you guys anymore when it's a group of, of men and women because words matter, right? And that's what I'm saying here is like, I think saying always and never, and especially if you all caps it on Twitter to make a point, I think that's detrimental to the folks who don't know the difference, like you're saying. And I also think it it can veer the conversation off in a direction that just doesn't matter. It's like, let's not debate if it's the last 5% or the last 1% or whatever. It's just being careful about how how you say things and how you think about things. I think that's the important part. Yeah, I agree with you when, you know, the conversation can easily go off into the weeds just because somebody said always and what they really meant was, you know, 95% of the time. But I think that that's a simple, in most cases, a simple correction, but Twitter is also not known for making it easy to go back and edit those things and provide a correction in a way that makes it visible to everyone who's going to see it. And then it just extends the conversation. So rather than continue going off into the weeds, let's kind of go back into uh, circle this back a little bit and talk a little bit about the, the nuances of that. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is just be more careful with your first post. Be, be very thoughtful when you're going to write and publish a blog post or say that tweet or whatever. Like, I intend very intentionally try to avoid absolute language and I have for years. And again, the folks who I admire, the folks who I see who are successful in general, they always do that. No, they don't always do that. But in general, that's the behavior I see as well. Coming back to nuance, like most topics we're going to talk about in the startup space, in the bootstrap space, or in the, in the broader, the whole startup ecosystem around the world of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of companies, like there's nuance to these things. It, it tends to be much more a spectrum or a continuum of one to a hundred maybe, instead of this zero to one, this binary thinking. I remember getting in a conversation, I believe it was on Hacker News, don't even remember, but someone posted, you should never outsource the development of your SaaS product. Never, never. And it was like, well, I mean, that's, that's okay advice. And it was like, if you don't build it, you have zero chance of it working and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's just patently not true. And it's not even a 5% exception. I would say that there's a bunch of stuff that add, can add up from, from 1 to 100. And it's like, if you're going to be a solo SaaS founder, let's say, if you have any of these skills, it will mean you have a higher chance of success. And one of those is development chops, right? Is the ability to build your own product. And another one is the ability to manage and, and, and hire people. And another one is the ability to market. And another one is, you know, the ability to think about product and build good UX. And, you know, and on and on and on. And I, if I recall, actually, in that Hacker News thread, I made a list of like 10 things. And I said, just weight each of them as a 10 if you have them. And if you don't, then, you know, or 9.9, right? Because you never get to 100. But like, and if you have all 10 of those, then you're a 99 out of 100 and you just have this huge chance of success. And if you, but most of us don't, like almost none of us have all, you know, all 10 of the things that I threw out. But that was a way of thinking about it where it's like, if I were to add it for myself, it's like, oh, I have 70 out of 100 or people I really respect have 80 out of 100 or whatever. And it's like, so they have a better chance than others. But that's all it is, is a chance, right? It's not an, oh, you should always never do these things. It's more like, 
let's look at the factors and the list of pros and cons. And I realize looking at pros and cons is complicated and it takes, you know, an advanced frontal lobe develop, develop. This is why kids often have a hard time doing this. So it, it, it can be hard and it hurts your brain to think about it. But I think that's important because higher level thinking involves this nuance. I wonder if that nuance also comes with time and experience too, because the couple of things that you had mentioned about, you know, these examples of somebody going on social media and saying, you know, she'd never outsource those core things. I remember there was a couple of articles from Joel Spolsky. I'm looking at them now. One of them is, it's titled, Things You Should Never Do Part One. And it's from April 6, 2000. And he's talking about basically rewriting an entire application from scratch and kind of goes into the history of, of Netscape. And then the next one is from let's see here, October 14th of 2001, which is in defense of not invented here syndrome, which is, he says, the best advice I can offer, if it's a core business function, do it yourself, no matter what. And both of those things are incredibly absolute. He's essentially saying never, ever do these things. But I think if you start reading beyond the statements and looking into what the context of what he's providing and all the things around it, you'll see the rationale. You'll see the reason why he's saying that. And I, I think that that context is important for the statement, not necessarily just the statement itself. You have to take the context into account along with the statement. Taking the statement alone is essentially taken out of that context, and it's very easy to manipulate it and twist it to say something that he didn't quite mean. He said it. He didn't mean that, though. Yeah, that's a good point. And I bet if you asked Joel today, 19 years later, I bet he would see a little more nuance in it, I would guess. I think that comes with experience. I think that comes with knowledge and wisdom, just doing more things. And, and maybe he wouldn't. And I mean, Mike, you, I bet you and I could go to our, your and my blogs or essays right now and find some evidence of some absolute thinking. And I, I bet it's 10 years ago. And I bet it was when I thought I knew everything. You know, I, I hear my kids or I hear kids in general say these black and white things like, I never get to do this. And it's like, actually, you did that last week, you know, but it's a way of kind of, it's a way of them kind of being dramatic or trying to call attention or showing how actually how really, really bad it is for them when it's when it's kind of not when they're exaggerating for a fact. And that kind of leads into this, this thing about frontal lobe development. Sherry and I have had this conversation where, like, if you watch a lot of kids' movies, they are very black and white, right? There's a good person and a bad person, a protagonist and a, uh, you know, and an antagonist. And as you develop and you watch shows like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, there's this really strong nuance. And when I've tried to watch shows, obviously I haven't watched Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad with my, my 13-year-old, but I have watched shows that have more nuance, like in the MCU, where, it, you know, in Black Panther, the, the villain in the first movie, there was, he wasn't, he wasn't bad, but he was, you know, and Th Thanos is another one. Like he's, he does want to kill, you know, half the people, but he has a pretty good reason for it. And he believes it. And he's not just doing things to be evil. He actually believes he's doing good when he does it. And it takes development to, to learn that. And Sherry has talked about how your frontal lobe is your advanced thinking, and it doesn't fully develop until like early 20s. I think women are a few years ahead of, of men with that. But this is another, one of the reasons why teenagers, why you thought you knew everything when you were 16, right? And why I thought I knew everything when I was 18 or when I was in high school. And then as you get older, you tend to, if you get experience and you get knowledge outside of your little, little box, you don't live in a little, little box, but you travel and you meet other people with other thoughts and you are allowed to be shaped. A lot of this happens in college, but you know, by the, when you're 18, you know, everything, when you're 28, you realize, you know, less when you're 38, you realize, you know, even less and, and so on. 
and eventually you get to be our age and you know nothing. <laughs> you know nothing and you You know nothing, Rob Walling. <laughs> yes. And you know how little you know. You know, that's that's part of it. But I I don't necessarily think that it's something that is I mean because the way I don't want to say that the way that this comes across is is ageist is in terms of people being younger and then like as you become more mature and you you get older you just naturally develop this. I think it's a a mechanism for or at least I guess a data point for you to look in the mirror and say like is this line of thinking or is this type of thinking actually helpful for me or for other people and the answer in general I think is no. But you have to be aware of it first. Like you can't just magically you hit a certain age and suddenly you are aware of this. I mean, it's something that develops over time and through repeated experience and exposure. And I think that's what we're trying to do here is just expose people to the idea that those absolutes without the context are probably detrimental, not just to you, but to other people as well. To your audience. That's really the point is I think these absolutes, that's right, are detrimental to you and to the folks who you're speaking to who don't know better. Right. Right. Who don't, it's not that. That's something you pointed out earlier. I am glad you called that out. My intent is not to say, oh, as you get older, you get out of absolute thinking. That was just, that was one example of frontal lobe development. But I've known folks who were in their late teens who I felt like had the, the life experience I, they were 18 and they were as not absolute as I was when I was 38. You know what I mean? They were way ahead of it. So it's not just some absolute scale of as you get older, you, you get better at this. I, I do think it's probably a, quite a bit of your upbringing. I was brought up very black and white and it took me years to break free of that. I think if you were brought up with more nuance and with parents who really talk things through in a, in a, a non-absolute way, I think you're ahead of the game. And then I think if you've had life experience, you've traveled outside of your home country and you've met a, you know, a lot of people with different viewpoints and evaluated those, I think you're ahead of the game. You know, and again, I, I've known kids, you know, 17, 18, 20 or whatever, who, who are way ahead of, of me and other folks that we might, uh, that we might encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. I think piggybacking on the experience thing, and I'm, t I'm totally guilty of this. I was guilty of this. Is like when I had my first success back in 2005, 2007, I was like, boom, I know it. Like the first time entrepreneur typically thinks they, ha they have it all figured out. And I did too. And a few years later, you tend to realize that you didn't. It's that in, in research circles, they call it the N of one. N is how many subjects you have in an experiment or in a research study. And so an N of 10,000, meaning you talk to 10,000 people or you research them or whatever, that gets to be like a pretty good number. It's statistically significant. And depending on how, how everything varies, I mean, an N of 500 can be totally valid or whatever. But an N of one is a little bit of a joke. It's like, that's basically an anecdote. I, I say this because Sherry was a researcher for a while. She she did a residency at, at Yale and there were a lot of researchers there. And that was one of their jokes was, um, you know, your anecdote is, is not my data, right? Or the singular, the singular form of data is not anecdote, right? That's almost like the, um, when I see arguments of people like, well, that didn't happen to me. And they're arguing against data that they disagree with because of what their experience was. And it doesn't invalidate their experience, but they feel like it does. But the, the data itself indicates something completely different. And I can think of any number of things where that stuff has come up. One that, example that comes up specifically is that Patrick Campbell at MicroConf had recently said and provided some data that said that companies that are remote first, I believe, are less successful or make less money than... Grow slower. Oh, that's what it was. It was they grow slower than uh, companies that are not, which kind of flies in the face of a lot of uh, kind of what we see. Like, it's not necessarily 
directly confrontational to it, but like a lot of us don't necessarily have the context of other companies either. And I think that's that's one of those dangerous things where you have a certain point of view and you believe that it is correct, but the data doesn't necessarily prove or support that. And you think that you're right, but you don't necessarily have any data to prove that you're right or wrong, but you have that, that core belief. And because you're growing a remote company. You don't want to hear that growing a remote company is going to be slower or it's going to slow down your growth. Yeah, that's a good example of that. I mean, I think that if, you know, examples of it I talked about earlier that, you know, we look at some specific things that I think I've, I've heard people say over the past, let's say 15 years of doing this. A common example is someone saying they try a marketing approach, it doesn't work, and then saying, yeah, this this never works for anyone ever, or this will never work, or this can't work with SaaS, or this can't work with B2C, or that kind of, it's like generalizing a single experience. Or even if you try something two or three times, it doesn't work. It's not accurate to say it never works. Paid acquisition is one that a lot of people try and give up on, where we see someone in the, a similar niche or, niche or the same vertical making it work. And I, and I think content marketing is another, or SEO, or, you know, you could go on and on and on with success stories and failure stories. And tr- to say it never or always works, it's just not, it's not helpful to say that. I think another one I used to hear is like, never, people would say like, never buy an app. Like you should build all your apps from scratch because the code will be too crappy and there'll be too much risk and too many problems. And yet all those things are true that there is problems and risk and the code is crappy and all that stuff. But the absolute of always never isn't. There are just pros and cons, you know, and you have to look at them. The never never hire contractors, only hire W-2 employees, right? I think venture capital tends to lean towards that. And I'm talking about building out a whole team. Let's say I'm going to have a team of 20. And some folks might want to be a solopreneur and have 10, 10 contractors or 20 contractors for that matter. That can work. We see folks doing productized services and, and having it work, but it's a different model. There's context to it, right? It's like a venture capitalist says, well, you have, your employees have to be loyal and, and your people are what make this company. And if you're going to build it to a $100 million venture-funded business, then this is the model we see working and we're pattern matching. And so they say, do that. Similar to like venture capitalists tend to want you to have uh, an office versus you know being having a remote team. In general, that's the patterns that they see working. But it's not an always never thing. I think that's what makes it difficult when you don't necessarily have a lot of familiarity with that topic or that particular subject because you don't have enough of your own context. So you're relying on the words of somebody else and kind of back to what you said and you've reiterated a couple of times, the words themselves matter. So if you're going to go down the road of trying to give advice or talk about a particular topic in you know whatever realm you're doing it, it's beneficial to most people to have to provide data points, to provide context about what percentages of the time this is accurate. And it's not to say that you're always going to be accurate. I, I think I just answered an email a couple of days ago from somebody asking about BlueTick and how it would integrate in with Exchange Server. And I said, well, I don't know your environment, but the majority of the time, and like I forget what percentage I said, it's like 80 or 90%. It's like 80 or 90% of the time when I've seen this, this is what it looks like. But there are other cases when it looks like this or that. And here are my suspicions based on what you have said, but I can't be 100% accurate. And I remember distinctly remember saying, I can't be 100% accurate because I don't know. Because there's always those little details that you're not going to know. And I think it's important to make sure that you quantify some of those details so that people know where the dark areas are, so that they know where there might be more information or context that they may need to have to completely understand what it is that you're trying to say in the, the general in the general sense, as opposed to making things absolute. Yeah, I think I like to think of it like this. First, learn the rules, 
then master the rules, then learn when and how you should break the rules. Right. It's like, and when I say rules, I actually mean rules of thumb, which isn't even let like rule makes it sound like it's an absolute, but rules of thumb that are generally accepted, whether it's common knowledge or whether you ask an expert and they have their own mental model of it. Like we pointed out SAS KPIs. That was a pretty popular episode a while back. Those are just rules of thumb that we've seen over hundreds and hundreds of businesses and first learn those and then learn when they shouldn't work. And if you stop at just learning the rules and then deciding there's this whole list of you have all these rules and they're always in nevers, you've stopped before mastery. It's the same thing of like becoming a black belt in a martial art. Black belt is once you've learned all of the stuff, you know, the basics, then you start mastering it, right? And then you become a second, third, fourth level black black belt is just, it's not the end. It's really the beginning of knowing all the quote unquote rules of thumb or all the tactics and techniques. And from there, you then build on that. Same thing with writing. Like you'll see prolific, successful writers, whatever, whether it's a Hemingway or a Stephen King or anyone in the middle, at some point they learned some rules, then they mastered them. And then they learned how to break them. And they, and they did stuff differently. And that's what makes them great. The other guy, Picasso, is another one. There's a Picasso museum. I don't remember if it's the one in Barcelona or there's one in, in like Antibe in France where it shows him in his early years and he just sits and paints for a decade and he paints every, all the stuff that everyone else is doing. And he starts off not good and then it gets better and better and better and better. And eventually he's a, he's a really good painter, but he's just one of many and he's learned the rules and he's mastered the rules. And then he started breaking the rules. And everyone's like, what the hell is this guy doing with these crazy paintings? And he invented cubism. And that was mastery. He didn't sit there and say, well, a painting should always have this form and that form and this type of shade and that type of shade. He, he started trying to break those rules and seeing what happened. And that's, that's how I feel about this. You know, the absolute, these rules are helpful for giving us guardrails when you're early on. But at a certain point, you then learn that like, you know, there's nuance and pros and cons to them. But I do wonder about whether you get to that certain point and how are you judged afterwards? Because if you're trying to break those quote unquote rules, is it because you're trying to experiment to figure out something new and something that is completely and fundamentally different from everything else? Or are you just a nutcase? And I think the, re the, but the result of that is kind of how you're judged afterwards. Like had he done that and created cubism and nobody liked it or thought anything of it, like we would not have ever heard about it right now. So, and I'm not saying that that's bad and you should never experiment. I'm just pointing out that I think that that is a, a natural evolution of what that process looks like. And it may not turn into anything, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't experiment with it. Right. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, I think the bottom line is like, it's important to form an opinion. It's important that, that we be able to discuss our opinions, be open to being convinced otherwise by smart people who have different experiences, right? Seeing the nuance and things. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. And again, I come back to, you know, someone like the folks who I respect and who I see who are a successful and also like have good relationships with fellow humans, whether it's a spouse and children, they have good family life, they have friends, they're just people that I want to be more like. Jason Cohen, Heat and Shaw. I mean, we we have dozens and dozens of folks that we know that do this, and and they are the folks who I see embodying this thinking, who learned the rules, then mastered the rules, and then learned when and where to break them. And it's very, very, very rare you'll hear any of them say that it's this hard and fast, always, you know, always, never. 
I even, I mean, I really like Jason Cohen's recent post on a smartbear.com. It's called Kung Fu. And it was all about his, it was kind of his rules, his rules of thumb. And he said, look, everyone's different. Like your mileage may vary, but these are things that I've learned. And it, you know, so there were things like, it wasn't don't do freemium. It was, I don't like freemium and I'm not going to use it. And here's why. And I think that is super important. To, to kind of couch something like that. It really, you know, comes back to a flexibility and nuance, even a growth mindset versus fixed mindset, right? I've talked about that book, Mindset by Carol Dweck. Growth mindset believes that like you can, you can and should change over time. Uh, you know, even your opinions and, you know, some of your beliefs and all that can, can be malleable and that's helpful and, and leads to, you know, success in a lot of things. And I think the overarching point here is just to educate yourself. I mean, uh, not just about the things that you're working on, but about how other businesses in general work, because I think it gives you more of a mental model or a framework to work from and be able to be a little bit more objective about the things that you're looking at. You know, it's just, it seems like it's, it would be easier in some ways to be more ignorant and just say, I know what I'm doing and I'm going to do things in this particular way because I know that it's going to work. But I think that being able to second guess yourself and being able to be a little bit more objective about the decisions that you make or that other people are making or the, the advice that you're receiving from people is extremely beneficial just because it gives you enough of a mental model to work from something where you're not sure you've got these dark spots and you're aware of those dark spots. You, you know that there's places where there's some, I don't want to call it risk, but like some percentage that it could go either way. And you, at least knowing where those places are is important. Yeah. When I'm thinking about a decision or something like this, where I might have an absolute in my head, I often will couch it as like, well, I'm 5149 on this, or I'll say I'm 955 on this. Right. And I rarely go higher than 95. There tends to be that the exception or the doubt or the it's just not so clear cut. Before you take us out, Mike, I have there's a few things. There's a few absolutes that I want to throw out that as you listen to them, each of them has totally valid exceptions, even though they feel like, wow, maybe these should be true. I challenge the listener to think about the, the completely valid exceptions to, to each of these things. Always write unit tests when coding. Always grandfather on price increases. Never trust Google or Facebook or never build on another, never build on someone else's platform and have your business totally reliant on it. Never go B2C. Never raise funding. And there are more we could throw out. So in general, are those, are those things true? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I think those are good rules of thumb. Are there times, totally valid times to break them? Indeed, sir. So absolute thinking, while it's not always bad, we would conjecture that uh, I think all of us, and us, you and I included, right? I mean, I think we can all get better at You would say that it's not always bad, but it's not always good. <laughs> not always good. <laughs> Let's raise the bar. Let's raise the bar of conversation. I think that's the point. So with that, we'll wrap things up. If you have a question for us, you can email it into us. Uh, yeah. Yes. Ah, I screwed up. And, yeah. Oh, all right. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number, 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us, questions at startupsrestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsrestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
So, Mike, after show, Avengers Endgame, we're going to spoil it. If you have not seen Avengers Endgame, stop now because we're going to cover plot points and everything. You and I have not talked about this at all. Nope. So, three, two, one, commence spoilers. <laughs> did you, did you, Spider-Man what did you think? Oh. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Did you, uh, did you like it? I, I did like it. I actually, I forget what, I, I don't remember whether it was Facebook or Twitter. I went on and afterwards, I was like, Avengers spoiler, Dumbledore dies. <laughs> oh, nice. I did like it. Um, I had read a review of somebody who'd seen a preview of it before. I like Wednesday, some reporter that had seen it and it didn't contain any spoilers or anything, but it was just a kind of a general thing. And it said, Oh, the first hour is kind of a slow buildup. And then the next two hours are full of action. So my expectations were a little different and I didn't think the first hour was as slow as they had indicated it was. And I didn't think the next two hours were as action backed as they indicated. So I was just like, I don't know. I mean, maybe I wish I kind of hadn't read that particular article. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a tough part, right? Spoilers don't tend to ruin movies for me, but other people's reviews of them might, because then it sets a different expectation. Cause I had none of that in going in and I really, really enjoyed it. I actually saw it twice in the first week, which I never do. Yeah, I considered going to see it again, but I was just like, nah, I'm not going to. <laughs> there was so much going, well, it was three hours, so it's hard to carve out, but there was so much going on. I wanted to, I wanted to absorb it twice. I mean, I got to be honest, man, seeing it, I liked it better the second time, which says something. And that whole last hour of the fight scene with, I mean, Captain America grabbing Mjolnir and, and then the Avengers assemble line and him I'm trying to think of what else there were. There were so many moments that I was like, I was like emotional. I was like inspired. I left that and I'm like, I want to go do something great. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was crazy. I was just super inspired the way that they, I'm not only, I wasn't just inspired within the story, but I'm also just so impressed that they built a 22 movie story arc. Like that is amazing. Like never in hip film history has that been done. And like, I just, I love being a part of, even just by consuming it, I love being a part of like, amazing things that that people create you know and that's how i felt watching watching it now there are obviously flaws with it yes i mean i enjoyed that it started really slow there were some funky things i mean i know people didn't like that the rat you know brought ant-man back it didn't bother me i mean i suspended disbelief the time travel stuff there's always you know a lot of conversation about that but i felt like the fact that we weren't saying we weren't analyzing crappy writing or huge plot holes. It was more like all that chatter on the internet and the, and the podcast reviews I read were really digging into small points, which tells me they, they did a good job, you know, and they delivered and they surprised you. They killed Thanos in the first 20, 30 minutes. And then you're like, Whoa, did not see that coming. And that was, I thought was great. Right. And then to, to then surprise you and have him come back and, and you know, and the way they did it, I think I was, I was impressed. I mean, you know, it was, I don't want to rant too much about how, great it was because i liked it a lot it wasn't the best movie i've ever seen but i i felt like it was just such a nice capstone and i think they could have it would it was hard to wrap up 22 films with all those storylines that was a monumental task and going in i was like oh no this is they're not going to do it well and i left feeling like "Ah, they did a good job with that yeah i agree i i I probably had my own expectations about who was going to make it out of the movie alive and who wasn't and obviously i think just about anyone who kind of gives that idea some consideration probably put both Captain America and Iron Man right at the top of the list. But I did find that I'm surprised that they didn't take, I don't want to say the opportunity, but they didn't kill more of the heroes. Like to, to have only one of them die, it seems a little 
I, and I and I hate to say that it seems not realistic because it's a comic book movie, you know? Yeah, but more of them could have died. They easily could have killed. There are a lot of kind of humans that are not, you know, like Quill or whatever, right? He could have easily been killed, but they want Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a successful film franchise, right? And I, I hear you, but I mean, you know what I liked is that really the, I think they're removing both Iron Man with death, but they're removing Captain America from the threat as well, right? I don't think they're going to make more Captain America movies. Really? I and, do. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah, because he handed over his shield. Oh, but they'll do it, but he's handed it, passed it on. They won't make it with Steve Rogers, right? He's Right, right. He's passing it on to the next generation. So, yeah, they may make more movies, but what I'm saying is they allowed these two characters, much like in the comics where they, like, pass on to the next and pass on to the next – I like the way they sunsetted Steve Rogers, basically. You know, but they didn't have to kill him either. They got creative with that, you know. Yeah. That he basically went off and lived his life like he wanted to. Right. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. I thought that they were both going to die. To be honest, I did. I did too. Yeah. But it makes sense. It makes sense how they did it. Yeah. So I don't know. I I I would say that the um at the very end, like I felt like it was difficult to follow certain pieces of it. I mean, I, I get that it's like a battle and it's kind of chaotic, but it did feel like there was a lot of people on the Avengers side and not really any, I don't want to say big name evil characters, but they didn't really focus on more than like four or five, you know, not even that I felt like it was like Thanos. And like, there were two other, two or three others that, that, and that was it. Black Mon. Yeah, um, not not Hulk was the guy we kept calling not Hulk. He's the big buff guy that was the evil, the Thanos's Hulkish guy. Right, but there's only like two I, or two or three of them, and that was it. Yeah, I think in a three hour movie, you just can't develop those. You don't can't develop them, you know. And they were kind of developed in the the Infinity War, kind of developed in Doctor Strange, if I recall. I don't even remember, but I I hear you. But Thanos is so powerful. I mean, the fact that Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor were all sitting there toe to toe with him, and Thanos just punks them and then he like start the only superhero who had any chance against him was captain marvel and then he pulled out the power stone and punches her i mean oh that was that took me by surprise i thought that yeah. he was gonna level him and then i know that. i was like oh my god what just happened that's and that's what that's what i liked is there were they continue to be surprises i tend to get bored in action films i tend to get bored when there's a lot of explosions and a lot of punching and i was not bored even the second time through that whole thing because of just the the beats that they hit with the, you know, with the fighting and how everybody kind of has a turn going after Thanos. And that's why I believe they didn't need a bunch of big name bad guys because Thanos was just, you know, so powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, what I meant was more like the, I'm surprised that they didn't develop them more uh, in previous films and then use them yeah. more and focus on them a little bit more in, in this one, because it was always like that, you know, they're focusing on one hero, then they focus on another hero and they're always punching or, you know, taking out this person like complete no-name cgi thing that is immaterial to the story yeah so it was almost like well why don't you let all the other no-names on the avenger side like attack them and then everybody focus on thanos and just be done with it because it seemed like there should have been a little bit more of that 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 i agree with yeah because i mean the going with thor and uh captain america and who was the other person that was in there um iron man yeah iron man like right going toe-to-toe -to -toe with thanos those three against him and then everybody else going and doing other things 
What did you think of when? No, that was they went toe to toe before everyone else showed up. Yes, but and then they got the crap beat out of them. Breaks cap shield, and that was a moment where I liked his captain just sits there and you know America. I mean they've all been crap beaten out of him and he like picks himself up they spend 30 seconds for him dusting himself off getting up and he's not gonna give up and he's gonna keep fighting and that i was like that those were the moments where i was like oh my gosh i'm so inspired right now and then you hear on your lap what did you think of captain america picking up thor's hammer and going with it mjolnir loved it I mean, that was a mo- and then Thor says, I knew it, you know, and it, it moves a little bit and you see, and you think Thor's calling it and it hits Thanos and goes right by and it just shines on Captain America and you see this grin and he looks and you're just like, oh no, this is going to be up. And then he starts bouncing the hammer off of Thanos and his own shield. And I mean, it's just, dude, I get, I got goosebumps. I don't get that often at films. Like they don't, but I just thinking about it, I want to see that whole segment again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was absolutely amazing. Um, and it was just there, there were I love the fact that there were all these moments that were just were things that I had not expected to happen. Because like, what I what I don't like about watching a lot of TV shows these days is that, you know, or, or most movies is that they tend to be predictable. They tend to be things where you, you can guess what's going to happen. And I can't count how many times I've been watching a, a TV show or a movie or something like that. And I'm watching the scene and I'll look over at my wife and I will say something. And then the character says it right after that. And I'm like, I could write this like this. This this is all trite BS. It's 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 not great writing whereas with this like the things that happened the things that were said were probably a little bit close to predictable but you still enjoyed it and the the stuff that actually did happen was very hard to predict that's what i felt too i felt like it was not maybe you could say that the end it was predictable that these characters would die because we know the actors wanted to leave and it's you know the good guys win in the end that's predictable but how they got there was i thought was just amazing yeah, I thought it was not predictable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, again, certain plot points were, but good stuff, man. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see. I guess the end of this third act is the 23rd movie, which is Spider-Man Far From Home. And that kind of wraps up the, that's what they're saying. It wraps up the, the story arc. So I'm curious to see it. Yeah. That, and that does make sense because they'd probably want to have something after Iron Man dies and kind of, I don't want to say resolve that, but at least show the characters kind of coming to grips in terms with the fact that Iron Man's no longer around. Yeah. Yep. And then what happens next? Yeah. I, I, I've seen different places where on the internet where like they're talking in social media about, Oh, phase four of the MC universe is like, I, I haven't even looked at them really because they mostly pointed to like YouTube videos and I'm like, I'm just not going to watch this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, me too. I barely know what's happening, but I will get there. I mean, it's, it's a year or two out as far as I know. So I think we, we have time mm-hmm. cool man let's wrap it all right take it easy you too